HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So before we jump into today's conversation, um, I want to personally invite all of you to a special event, Heritage Radio's annual holiday gala, Winter in the Garden. On Monday, December 3rd, our hosts and supporters will be enjoying food and drinks from incredible chefs and bartenders at the gorgeous Palm House at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. So if you want to talk about farming with me in person um, or just eat delicious food or preferably both, um, head over to heritageradionetwork.org backslash gala and use a special code FARMREPORT, that's all capitals, one word, FARMREPORT for 10% off your ticket. All right. So today I'm here with Mark Oshima, the co-founder of AeroFarms, an indoor aeroponic farm based in Newark, New Jersey. Mark, thanks for being here. Yeah, excited to be here and uh, excited to share our story. Awesome. So um, right before this, I was I was doing some reading and I read that AeroFarms is the world's largest indoor farm. Is that true? Yeah, there's a, <laughs> a lot of things that uh, AeroFarms has been really kind of pioneering and leading the space. And so uh, in Newark, where we have our global headquarters, we actually have uh, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. And that's based on uh, output as well as productivity. Mm. And this is our ninth farm that we've built out overall. And so we'll be the first to tell you that this is not easy to do. The idea that we're growing indoors without sun or soil, we're able to convert warehouses and think about how we can enable local production to be able to grow all year round. And it's using science and technology, but fundamentally it starts with an understanding of the plants and the biology 
and then thinking about how do we create the perfect systems and how do we put that all together. And that's what makes AeroFarms really unique is that we've taken this approach from day one in terms of bringing all this expertise in-house. Uh, our roots, we started out actually in upstate New York in uh, the Finger Lakes area. Oh, and so our chief science officer, and, and again, many farms don't have a, a chief science officer, uh, Dr. Ed Harwood, he uh, was a former professor at Cornell University. It's one of the top ag schools in the world. Right. So we've always had very much a very much a, a science-driven approach to you know what we're doing and how we're growing. And again, it starts with those building blocks of understanding what the plants need, how to give it to them, and we really think of ourselves as, as the plant whisperers and how do we optimize that. Um, I didn't realize you had nine farms at this point. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about that, about the the history and how you went from the Finger Lakes and moved to Newark and then... I, I think you were just one and, you know, you started out with the one and like, tell me a little bit about the trajectory of the growth. Yeah. Yeah. So part of it is, you know, thinking about, we started out uh, in the Finger Lakes growing and selling. And so we were uh, selling into places like the Ithaca farmer's market, you know, just one of the best farmer's markets uh, in the United States, uh, selling into restaurants like Moosewood restaurant. So again, a very high bar around the quality. And that's really one of the things that we've been really celebrating is just incredibly, not only fresh, but just beautiful, you know, varieties, beautiful flavor and uh, getting a chance to really celebrate that. Uh, what we realized is that, that technology and how we were growing, so the idea that we're growing indoors and how do we deliver you know, what the plant needs. So the aero and aero farms refers to aeroponics. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually misting the roots as opposed to bathing the roots. But it's a way of using 95% less water than the field and even 40% less than hydroponics. And so you know, we think about our most precious re- you know, resource right now is water. Uh, 70% of you know fresh water is going to agriculture. 70% of the pollution is coming from agriculture. That's worldwide. In the United States, it's 80% in California. Thinking about you know what's happening, anything about you know headline news around drought and, and access to water. So we knew that this is one of the ways of you know how, how to solve you know that part of the equation. And in 2009, then uh, our company actually started back out in 2004. In 2009, our business pivoted. Though we had some investment from clean tech saying you know this kind of technology is transformative and you should really be in, empowering other farms and selling the technology. And so we pivoted to become what's called an OEM, an original equipment manufacturer. And that's part of that history when we talk about setting up other farms. And so we were selling and licensing uh, the technology. Oh, what, so other farms are using that the aeroponic technology that you developed? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. That's part of that history, both here in the U.S. as well as even internationally. So we've had, a, since 2011, a demonstration farm in, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So we think about how to grow in very tough, you know, growing environments. And so we've had experience in, in multiple different uh, venues. But we realized that this understanding, you know, of the plants and the technology uh, and all of our growing systems have been developed in-house. And mm-hmm. so that's been a very different approach because it's really about understanding, again, how to create uh, both in terms of the capital expenditure, but more importantly, the operating uh, metrics of how to optimize the plants. And so that interaction and understanding that we're not just adapting something from off the shelf, we created it from the ground up. Uh, it gave us a lot of insight in saying, you know, our intellectual property, this in in, insight around this was just really too precious to be licensing. So we've gone back to our roots as the farmer. Uh, we moved our headquarters down to Newark. And part of the reasons why we moved to Newark, actually one of the working farms that we've had for over eight years has been an inner city school uh, in Newark. And so our technology is very modular. So the original part of the design thesis was how it can be used and repurposed for different types of buildings. And so we think mm. about abandoned buildings, how we can kind of breathe new life back into it. So our system is very modular, very flexible. So imagine when we talk about indoor vertical farming, these are beds of growing stacked on top of each other. 
And all of a sudden, we're not talking about productivity per square foot. We're talking about productivity per cubic foot. And so we're going, in many cases, up to 38, 40 you know, feet up in the air. And so we're talking about systems that can be 12 levels, 14 levels high. And all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about how do we enable this local production and have the right kind of economies of scale. But it can be adapted. So the farm that we have at the school is actually two levels, and it's right in their dining hall. Mm. And it creates incredible connection for the students. It's the shortest farm-to-table experience around for them. It's right in their dining hall. And they eat it. That's the best thing about it, which is, again, how do you change behavior? Mm-hmm. Um, but that history in Newark uh, created a lot of goodwill in the community. And when we were looking about you know, where we could relocate our headquarters, the idea was Newark metro market because this is all about scale. How do we feed the masses? Mm-hmm. And Newark was very welcoming. We had a chance to work with the time was Mary Booker and then now Mary Baraka and really having this great public-private partnership. And so fundamentally, it's not only about what we're doing on farming and transforming agriculture, we're thinking about business as well. And so the idea that we can uh, address things that are historically high unemployment rates, uh, bring new jobs, bring year-round employment, you know, fair wages, fair benefits, um, it's really important for us as a company. We actually are a certified B Corporation mm-hmm. and thinking about how business can be a force for good and thinking about, again, we have a a transparent scorecard about you know how we're doing and again it's not just in farming this is beyond and so we think about other leaders like the patagonias or the stony fields or now you know danone i mean thinking about again how do we uh, be good actors and so we're looking at environmental factors societal factors and so again excited to be in newark great community and excited that's our headquarters and we actually have commercial farms as well as R&D farms there as well. So, okay. Yeah. And are, are all of them in Newark, all the nine farms at this point? Currently, yeah. yeah. So when we talk about that history and, and growing, you know, we, we've gone back, as I mentioned, to our roots. And so um, our base is in in, uh, in Newark, but our lens, we have farms in development right now in the Middle East, in Northern Europe, and in, in China as well, mm. and as well as also in the United States. And so what's exciting huge opportunity and we think about these macro pains in terms of increasing population, increasing urbanization, uh, increasing issues with uh, mother nature and climate change, uh, we need new paradigms. And so things that we feel are painful here are even more acute in other areas. And all of a sudden, if you start to layer in food security, food sovereignty, food safety, um, these are really wide encompassing issues and we're excited to be able to be uh, a player and uh, an innovator in the space. Okay, and so how um, the the food that you're producing is it all being sold locally, or are you shipping it across the country? And yeah, so what we're excited about is you know really thinking about our farms as being by the community for the community, and so we're selling you know everything really within 50 miles. Oh, interesting. Um, and so that's been very much about that local and and celebrating that. Uh, what's been exciting, though, is that we've had national, international retailers coming in saying, the product you're growing here in Newark, we'd like to take back to California. Or we'd like to take back to you know, overseas because of the quality. And so it's been really humbling, but also validating that we have a very different product proposition. And so we talk about growing indoors, and our expertise is really understanding, you know, again, how can we optimize for taste, texture, color, even nutrition, and then ultimately yield. But the idea is that we can have that level of precision to create a very differentiated product. And so that's what's been really exciting is getting the response from top tastemakers, top chefs, top buyers that, you know, they feel like their palate's been woken up again. So it's an opportunity to really create some excitement in this category. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how how you're actually growing? So you mentioned um, the system involves misting the roots instead of um, in a traditional hydroponic system, the roots being in actual water, right? Right. Um, 
so that's one difference. Um, can you just kind of like paint a picture of like what what it actually looks like a plant growing in this system? Yeah. So when we talk about you know not growing uh, with sun or soil, so uh, our growing medium, for example, mm -hmm. is cloth, and this is something that we actually have patents around. And the cloth is really elegant in so many different ways. Uh, it gives us a lot of flexibility about what, what we can grow. We've grown hundreds of different varieties. Uh, we've grown a wide range of different crops as well, all in the cloth. And the cloth is reusable. And so we think about you know things like the circular economy and how do we eliminate waste and how to be more judicious with our resources. Uh, that's part of our entire you know design thesis in terms of our entire system. And it's really a system approach. That cloth, the advantages of it, uh, also that it's lightweight. So we think about building a structure and going up and building multiple levels. Um, that already gives us a lot of flexibility. We also think about uh, what the cloth is doing. So we talk about misting. So we're seeding, germinating, growing on top of this cloth. Okay. The roots go through the cloth mm -hmm. and we're misting the roots underneath. And, but the cloth then serves as a barrier. Nothing ever touches the leaves. So there's no soil to wash off. There's no chemicals to wash off. I mean, this is a way of growing that we use zero pesticides. So we're able to deliver a clean, ready-to-eat product. And so the cloth has so many advantages, you know, from that standpoint. And then the cloth is reusable. And so, again, we actually have uh, an effective kill step. So after we harvest, uh, we simply scrape off the stems and roots. We wash it, have a kill step. And we think about the phytosanitary conditions. We think about that food safety, how we can elevate this. And this is really about, you know, marrying good agriculture practices, good manufacturing practices, and get a chance to set a new standard. And so we get a chance to hit reset and, re and, and restart again. And then this cloth has a unique story in and of itself as well. It's made out of uh, recycled BPA-free water bottles. And so the idea that we're taking mm -hmm. hundreds of water bottles out of the waste stream and turning it into something green and productive goes back to those tenant around circular economy and how do we eliminate waste. And so this cloth then allows us to uh, you know, have this stack you know, growing. The plants don't need sunlight, they need spectrum of light. And so we understand Instead of, uh, we are able to deliver that through LED lights. And so, again, we even have designed our own LED array. And so our chief technology officer is formerly a chief technology officer of a publicly traded LED company, formerly of GE Lighting. But the idea that we even design our own lighting is very unique in the marketplace. And so, you know, we're the only commercial grower out there in the world that's been growing exclusively with LED lights since 2009. So we have incredible history and understanding the interaction and that idea of what's the right spectrum, what's the right frequency, what's the right intensity. And we have all that cultivated into what we call a growing algorithm and thinking about those inputs and about how do we uh, optimize the plant you know, for that performance. Mm. So in a system like that, um, what is a farmer doing? Like, do you, do you, first of all, do you use the term farmer uh, for the people that work at Aero Farms? And what's their actual job like what does the labor look like yeah absolutely we're farmers at the heart we're farmers we, we we're nourishing communities we're feeding the communities this is what we're passionate about passionate about the connection with the food um and it really starts with you know how do we uh, think about the plants right so we're getting the perfect environment and so um our team and we have expertise in terms of uh, the technology and the engineers and the design of the systems, uh, but our plant scientists. Uh, so we think about the crop physiologists, the plant pathologists, uh, the biological engineers. We're all looking at the plants and we're looking at it holistically. There's a very much a symbiotic relationship between the plants and the system. But we're integrating technology. And so the idea that we can do things that the human eye can't even detect, so things with machine vision and spectral imaging and machine learning is allowing us to harness technology in a new way that 
you know, we're harvesting those insights as much as the crops. But what it allows us to do is be able to then have that level of control and consistency. So the plants are being watched 24-7. You know, like you physically, can, someone's walking around watching them. No. No? <laughs> so sensors, monitors, um, and okay. the idea that, again, real time, you know, our systems, our growing systems are really like living computers, growing computers. And so they're able to uh, identify, adapt, adjust, you know, based on, you know, again, different uh, growing regimens. But what that's uh, complemented by is that we do have a team that's scouting and, 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 and looking. And so this is art and science. So the idea of you know, how do you inform you know, these algorithms and think about the, the qualitative aspects. So there could be the plant morphology, the size, the shape, the biomass. There could be the taste. So we do a lot of sensory you know, work. And you know, the team is very much in terms of you know, focus on how we deliver that best product all the time. But so the the people that come to Aero Farms and say or you know say I want to be a farmer at a, a place like uh, Aero Farms, what kind of background do they tend to come from? Like what's what's the training? Um, are they coming mostly from science programs or? Yeah, yeah. what's exciting is that this is really a, a mix of of all of the above. And so when we think about um, hiring, and you know we think about. Uh, it's both skilled and unskilled work, but the fundamentally we're making everyone better farmers and how we're doing that is not only technology, but we have over 250 different standard operating procedures on how to run a farm. So we talk about our history of running different farms, different locations, and we think about how we've codified that into really the playbook. This is the new playbook in agriculture. And so we are creating the next generation of farmers. Uh, and this is even with you know people who have not had the traditional horticulture background. And so we're able to really give them the insights and tools in terms of being able to advance and develop within aero farms as well to different um, you know, uh, opportunities that, that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, back to um, how you grow. So the, the products I've seen coming out of aero farms are pretty much all greens. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but most, most um, indoor farms and um, hydroponic operations, um, a lot of what's being grown is greens and herbs. Um, it, is that because, like, can you grow other things? Do you grow other things? Um, I've heard the the wavelength of light actually matters. Um, so I, I'd be curious to, to hear about that, that you can only, um, certain plants respond to different wavelengths and, and that's a challenge. Uh, fundamentally, we can grow anything and have grown a wide range. So we've done the vine crops, we've done tubers, we've done even root vegetables, mm. uh, we've done fruit and berries. So it's not a technology limitation. Uh, we talk about we have an R&D farm, we have an uh, engineering uh, prototyping farm. Uh, we're doing trials of all those different things all the time. Um, so we have a tremendous amount of insights that are transferable you know, to other categories of food. Uh, when we think about our commercial farms, they have been optimized for short stem leafy greens and herbs, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, it goes back to when we think about, again, how do you feed the masses? How do you enable you know, the right kind of economies of scale? We talk about baby leafy greens that out in the field, uh, there are tremendous amount of pain points. You know, it's, it's considered by the environmental working group as one of the most dangerous categories because of food safety, because of the use of the pesticides. Um, and so how do we think about that? It's one of the areas that's one of the most nutritionally dense, but highly perishable. Um, and we think about like where, you know, there's a reason why Salinas, California is known as the salad bowl because mm-hmm. of the environment and climate. So 95% of the leafy greens today are grown in either in Salinas or Yuma, Arizona, depending on the time of the year. And what it signifies is that, you know, there's a very complex supply chain. It also signifies that 
by the time that product gets to you, you here on the East Coast, it's already five to seven days old in terms of when it's harvested. And so you're missing out already on a lot of nutrition. You're also missing out on flavor. And so we look at that and say, you know, what are the pain points and how do we, can we help address that? And then by thinking about the plants themselves, right? So out in the field, the baby leafy greens may take 30 to 45 days to grow. Right. And that one variable there is really the sun and the season. And, you know, again, think about any other manufacturing business where you have that much of variability. It's a real challenge. But we can grow that exact same plant, that exact same seed in 12 to 16 days. So it's just changing the equation completely in terms of thinking about what does the plant need and, and getting that output. Uh, that translates up to 30 harvests a year, again, versus that field farmer may get two, maybe three harvests a year. And so we're thinking about, again, how do you change that equation? Uh, that fast growing process, that uh, idea of that, again, we can have vertical levels of growing. Uh, the idea that there's no weeds, so there's no competition. So we get even more density per square foot. This all leads to a way of growing that's 390 times more productive versus that field farm on an annualized basis by understanding the plants and these cycles. And so that's what's fueling, you know, for us in terms of like, how do we drive the right business model mm. and have the impact in terms of, again, being able to work with a wide range of different customers. Uh, we're excited to be at Whole Foods, but this is also at ShopRite, right? We're also working with uh, major uh, food service companies, institutions. We sell the schools. So the idea that our product uh, is available and accessible, and we even open up our doors. We even have our own farm stand where the community can come in and get access to fresh, healthy food. So it's um, one of the things that we look at uh, from a growing standpoint. But what's exciting is that we can grow a wide range of different things. Right. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the nutrients in the, the, um, vegetables that you grow. So, um, I think, you know, from, from all the research I've seen, um, when you take a, you take, um, a hydroponically grown vegetable and compare it to, um, something grown in soil, if it, if they're both grown very well, it's the, the differences in nutrients are generally pretty negligible. Like they're both super, you know, the, the nutrient, um, makeup, um, is generally pretty similar. Um, I know also that a lot of indoor growers argue you can be even more precise about nutrients. So maybe, you know, the, sometimes the nutrients will be even higher. Um, I also know a lot of soil-based farmers, um, make this argument about how there's so much going on in the soil that plants get that, um, we don't even understand. And so when you grow things without the soil, you're sort of potentially missing all of this stuff that nature provides, right? That we haven't even maybe figured out yet. Like we didn't really know a lot about the microbes in soil um, pretty recently. Um, so I, I guess, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how you think about the nutrients in the vegetables and like what, are you testing them? Um, how, do you, how do you think about this and, and respond to that sort of, it's not, I don't know if it's a criticism, it's just sort of an argument. Yeah, so this is what's really exciting about when we think about AeroFarms and this expertise and the science, you know, and what we're doing is understanding the plants and thinking about the essential elements, you know, thinking about the macronutrients, the micronutrients. And we look very closely at that plant health and the plant, you know, pathology. And we look at that and how that translates into human health. So then we do third-party testing, you know, for mm -hmm. all of this in terms of the plant tissue. We do testing on... Uh, the nutrients then as well for, you know, the human. And what's exciting is that we can actually deliver a more nutritionally dense product. So the idea that we can actually enhance that because 
We have a level because of control. Because of the precision. The precision, control. the control. Yeah. And more importantly, we can do that consistently. And that's something that the field farmer is really, really challenged with, right? And so what we think about and where we think about our expertise and understanding, uh, we look to you know some work that we're doing right now. So the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research is a nonpartisan uh, organization that's been funded out of the Farm Bill. And we were the recipient of a million-dollar grant that we match. It's a $2 million program. And it's specifically around our expertise and ability to identify stressors of leafy greens to be able to optimize for taste and nutrition. So they're talking about that nutrition component. And so it's that level of control and precision, but also insight. You know, Again, our system, the interaction with the plants. And this is a three-year initiative that we will publish. And the whole lens is how do we help benefit the entire agriculture community? And so the lessons learned uh, will be applied you know, to the broader industry. And so this is really the new uh, way of farming and the expertise we have around this is how we can help you know, be able to benefit the, the broader community as well. Hmm. But I mean, in terms of like what could be missing like the the you know with that, since you're not using soil is that is that a question you get asked a lot and how do you respond to that right right so it goes back to like what is it that the plant needs right right and so you know we think about the 17 essential elements and you know we break it down there and we look at those macro and micronutrients and think about how we deliver against that um, this concept and we have a healthy biome that's happening in terms of our reservoir it's happening in terms of where we're misting and you know mm. the environment around the roots and so we understand, and ultimately, again, the testing and the validation around that is that we're delivering incredibly healthy product uh, and uh, nutritionally dense product that, by the way, has great flavor, right? So again, it, it's um, not an either-or proposition. It's about how do we create this new category. Um, you know, this concept of, you know, if it's grown in the soil, uh, it, it's a little bit of a specious argument because in the idea that... Uh, you're just missing out or you don't know. Well, you don't know, but we actually know about what we're putting in and how we're managing that process. And so we would like, you know, think about how do we reframe that a little bit differently and saying, what is it that plants actually need? And that's where we start with. Mm. Um, oh, we, we've been uh, really just cruising through here and we need to take a commercial break. Um, when we come back, um, I want to get more into um, the sustainability of the operation and, and some of the environmental um, issues that come into play. Um, so we'll be back in just a minute. If I come into a party hitting raps like this, all you superficial rappers will cease to exist. If I come into a party hitting raps like this, all you superficial rappers will cease to exist. If I come into a party hitting raps like Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the Communications Director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. 
HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Mark Oshima from Aero Farms. Um, so before the break, we were talking a lot about just what you do, right? <laughs> like what the farm looks like, how you grow, um, and nutrients in the plants. Um, I want to dig a little deeper into um, sustainability. So I know that Aero Farms, um, definitely one of your... Um, big selling points is that growing this way is good for the environment. Um, so we, I think the one thing that did come up before the break was water use. You talked a lot about how the system uses significantly less water um, than soil and then even compared to hydroponics, right, um, because you're using the mist. Um, so I want to, um, so I feel like we talked about water. Um, I want to talk about energy. So you know, the first thing that comes to mind when I think when I think about this system is that it's super high tech. Um, you mentioned the LED lights. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of lighting, um, really um, serious climate control that must go into it. Um, so talk a little bit about how much energy is being used and how that um, plays into this kind of farming as opposed to um, outdoor soil-based farming, which you're essentially harnessing free energy from the sun. Right. So, yeah, happy to you know talk further. And it's a really complex issue when you think about the field farming. And so it's, it's really important to put a spotlight there. And the idea that either the sun's free or water's free is really a misno- you know, misnomer. It's not the characterization. So the idea that when we talked about that growing cycle in the baby leafy greens, 30 to 45 days, the sun is the variable there. So that's uh, one of the big issues in weather, and you know, if you have poor issues, mm-hmm. uh, the water though. Again, we think about the environment in California. Um, they've been depleting the aquifer there at a greater rates than replenishment, and so they're more challenged than ever before. And so, they actually are having to install new new pumps and new wells in terms of being able to go deeper. Uh, what does that mean? That means uh, more energy as well. And so there's a huge amount mm. of of energy consumption just on that and the changing dynamics from that. But really, the dirty side of this of the industry that people don't think about is really on the processing side. And you know, we talk about large scale farming. There's a reason why it's not in California. It's it's consolidated. It's really been uh, about scale. Uh, but the processing facilities these are the size of you know two football fields in terms of like how many you know gen engine coolers are running 24 seven. And uh, if you think about something's triple washed, and you know what are they washing away? But all that water becomes gray water and not remediated. Mm. Uh, but the energy used on that part of the equation in terms of taking the field heat out, bringing it down to temperature, and then this very complex supply chain of how it goes from that processor to the distributor, to the retailer, or to the restaurant, and then ultimately to the consumer, this is a category, you know, there's been a lot of focus on food waste. 40% is mm-hmm. thrown out by the consumer. If you follow all the way back to the value chain, to the farm, it's actually 76% for leafy greens. And so you think about that tremendous amount of waste, the tremendous amount of energy, tremendous amount of inputs that have gone into that. And we're excited. There's actually an initiative that Cornell University is doing with the $3 million grant from uh, National Science Foundation to be able to look more closely at um, the field grown versus greenhouse versus some of the indoor vertical farming to be able to have more of an apples to apples because these are really quite complex. On Like comparing them like... Fully on all of the environmental impacts or just on water use? 
No, on, on, on everything. So mm-hmm. the idea in terms of carbon emissions as well. So the idea in terms of really doing this kind of a life cycle assessment. Yeah, quite a life com- cycle, yeah. Yeah, it's quite complex. And, you know, they're going to get a chance to be able to start to look at some things from an apples to apples standpoint. What we would say, uh, we know that. We know what these issues are. Uh, we've designed the entire process from end to end. And it's important to start first with a premise about, you know, who we are and our founding principles. And I talk about us being mission-driven and a certified B corporation. Um, but from day one, you know, we've been part of something called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, Circular Economy 100. And again, that idea fundamentally of how do we eliminate waste and turn it into something productive. Uh, this is something that's in our DNA. So what's really special about the organization, I mentioned a little bit about our chief science officer, uh, the other fellow co-founder, our CEO, David Rosenberg. Uh, literally clean tech champion. He's been very involved with the World Economic Forum. Uh, he has uh, been the co-chair on the Global uh, Circular Economy Task Force. Um, he had the first ever cradle-to-cradle certified product. So the idea, again, this lens about how do we be really judicious you know, with our resources and, again, how do we eliminate that waste is built into every single design uh, aspect of what we're doing and how we operate. And so this is uh, something that we take very seriously. It's something we put front and center. That's why we have this you know, report card on what we're doing. And so we're happy to talk about, you know, how we fit into this equation. And so when we think about our process, it's end-to-end from seed to package, right? So we're growing, mm-hmm. uh, we're also processing, and we're also then distributing, you know, the product. Um, you can see that LED lights is, is one of the core elements. Um, but because we've designed our own LED array, uh, for example, uh, we know we're way, way ahead of the energy uh, industry in terms of efficiency and energy. And so... The idea that we can eliminate, you know, some of the energy hogs, the yellow light, and we can think about what do the plants need, we optimize the spectrum. So we have a very tailored approach that you can't get something off the shelf, and that really allows us to have a much more thoughtful lens in terms of the lighting specifically. Um, But again, it's built into this overall process of how we think end-to-end and who we are as a company. Hmm. I I didn't think about the the processing part. That's an interesting um, component. Um, It seems like it it would be, I mean, the biggest place where that would come into play is if you were comparing Aero Farms to something like these giant um, farms producing greens in California, like you mentioned before, in the salad bowl, where it's just like so much, and then they're being shipped all over. Right. So it's like the processing, the distribution. Um, I mean, but if you were comparing like at full like life cycle energy use to um, from Aero Farms to like a small diversified farm that's like selling to a market, then I would imagine Aero Farms would be using a lot more energy. Is that right? <laughs> there's different parts. So, I mean, yeah. we didn't talk about food miles, transportation miles. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of work that's actually been done to look at the efficiency. I mean, and the reason why, you know, uh, the farming industry and this idea of it being centralized, there, there's a lot of efficiency that's been gained. So that truck that's coming from California, that 53-foot trailer truck, is far more efficient in terms of delivering that product yeah. than uh, the pickup truck that you know may have been around for a few years and so forth. So there's some discussion. So there's a lot of complexity to that. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing, though, we think about, again, is that that local comparison that you're trying to you know kind of craft mm-hmm. is for a small window of time during the year, right? And so we think about mm. our ability to grow year-round, the impact we're trying to have. And, you know, it's really important we think about, again, um, 
issues in terms of, you know, Newark itself is a food desert of where we're operating. So how we can increase right. access to healthier options. This idea that this is a, a more nutritionally dense category, but we're making it even more so. You think about, you know, the efforts that have been happening, you know, if half your plate should be, you know, vegetables, but no one's doing that, right? And so if you're going to eat something, you want to get the most out of it. And so that's what we're really focusing on, how we can even deliver more calories. The idea that we talk about that waste and spoilage, right? And the idea how we can bypass and, and really eliminate that. And so we talk about a better value proposition for the consumer uh, at the end of the day in terms of how we be judicious with those inputs and resources, but then in terms of even uh, what they're paying for. Right. Well, and yeah, and you did, I think you mentioned earlier the, the output, um, like how much you're able to grow in all year round and in right. in the space that you have because it's vertical. Um so if you were going to do that life cycle assessment, you'd have to like that. I feel like that output would be such a huge component, right? Because you're producing so much. Exactly. Um, so then it gets distributed with, across, uh, you know, all those pounds of production exactly. and then impact. Yeah. Right. Um, what about um, cost? So it seems to me that you would, I mean, the technology is so advanced that it seems like it would be expensive to, you know, set up these systems. And um, how does like growing this way compare to growing outside. Yeah, I mean, what's exciting for AeroFarms and where we've been in terms of our, our history and uh, our operating history is uh, each of our farms are, are, are generating great uh, returns. And so we have, you know, project backers like Goldman Sachs and Prudential, you know, at the project level. And they've looked at, again, those uh, economics and understanding, you know, what we're doing. Uh, but fundamentally, this is a product that's being sold in the marketplace is the same price as the field-grown product. And so, yeah, wh how we're able to do that is because of the economies of scale, because of this history, and because of our understanding of the marketplace. And so we talked a little bit about the backgrounds and some of the different founders, um, Ed uh, on the science, uh, David on the clean tech. Uh, my background has been in, in, in marketing and in retail. I've headed the marketing for supermarket chains, especially food retailers, restaurants. So understanding those channels really well and understanding you know, how we can talk their language, understand how we deliver their right margin contribution that they're looking for, how we can help grow the category. And so that's what's exciting for you know the work that we're doing today is that we're already cost competitive. More than that, we have a better value proposition. And as we continue to grow, it's about you know how we can even spread that across even um, you know more communities. So it's probably, um, I mean, I think that's really interesting that you're selling at um, the same price point um, at the grocery store. And I guess when you think about cost, like you're saying efficiency, ends up um, helping with the with the cost. Um, the biggest thing would be at the beginning, right, where you just need a lot of, like, to create a system like this. It's just a lot of upfront costs. There, there is some capital intensity. So this goes yeah. back to when we think about, you know, the size of a farm, the size uh, mm -hmm. of a facility. But even here, it's important to, you know, kind of paint this in the picture of, like, versus field farming. So I'll give you an example. So an aero farms project is typically between 10 and 20 million dollars in terms of uh, location, in terms of condition of the building, in terms of you know the amount of uh, growing towers that we're able to incorporate. Um, the output, though, when we talk about the impact, right. anything about again uh, a comparable way of looking at it. Uh, in Salinas, right, the cost of an acre of land is over sixty thousand dollars, and. Wow. Uh, there's more pressure and more demand for that beyond just leafy greens, the strawberries, the avocados, the almonds. I mean, they're all competing mm -hmm. against for this. Same thing with the worker uh, uh, in terms of, you know, worker availability and, and the challenge there. But 
this on the sheer land alone, uh, you need a minimum of a, a thousand acres, if not 2000 acres, again, to have the right economies of scale to be able to support that. So there you're talking about an eight, you know, figure, nine figure investment already just on the land to be hmm. able to have an entry point. And so there are huge barriers to, to entry. You think about uh, what's really special about Salinas is that you have these multi-generation fam- uh, uh, farms and families. Uh, but the fact is, that has become a barrier of entry in terms of being able to, you know, be able to compete in that area as well. Yeah, no, that that I didn't even think about the the cost of land is um, one of the biggest barriers for um, people getting into farming right now. And actually, we're going to have an episode about land access in a few weeks. <laughs> um, so um, we're we're running out of time. Um, before we go. Um, What's next for Aero Farms? So, like, I, I'm interested in this idea that you're, you've got this whole thing going in Newark. You're selling within 50 miles, um, you know, selling in the community. And um, is the idea that you would then take that to other regions and do the same thing elsewhere? Or are you focused here for now? Um, no, I mentioned we have an uh, incredible pipeline of projects. Mm. And you can really look at... Uh, really our, our last round of key investors that we've had in the, in the mix in terms of thinking about key geographies. And so how do we think strategically in terms of market entries? But uh, the Middle East and the UAE, uh, China, and then Northern Europe are, are key active areas that we have farms in development. And so uh, this is very much you know global in nature and global in scale. And you know today the company is about 120 people. We've been growing tremendously. And it's really about how we can help support that uh, all those opportunities out there. Interesting. So more more outside of the U.S. coming soon. More outside of the U.S. as yeah. well as, but there's tremendous in the in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But we talk about again as a company, you know, and think about these pain points that we're feeling. Um, they're even more acute. Like you think about growing in the, in in the desert, right? You think about uh, growing uh, in China. Huge issues in terms of uh, access to arable land, access to fresh water, but you know, heavy metals in the, in the soil. So so much remediation is needed there. And the population explosion, right, in terms of right. the growth and the urbanization. So how do we help uh, address that? That's what we're excited about in terms of where we see opportunities, uh, not only here, but all over. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you as well. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, rate, and share it. And don't forget to get your tickets to Winter in the Garden at heritageradionetwork.org backslash gala with code FARMREPORT for 10% off. See you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.